Welcome to another episode of Little Insights, uh, kind of following on from the theme of our last episode and sticking with Rosa Shines, um, looking at the second principle, which is small informa uh, new information in small steps. Um, so I kind of did a bit of research, kind of lead on from what you discussed last time, Ben, uh, with Sweller in 2011, talking about that cognitive overload. Um, did a bit more digging. It actually comes from Atkinson in 1968. This information has been around for quite a long time about working memory um, and it kind of links back to that last episode where working memory has only got a kind of a finite number of resources in order to work with and kind of I know uh, Rosie you mentioned uh, uh, Rosie oh this is embarrassing for me now Susie just I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Rosemary from last um, yeah no it's embarrassing thinking about you said about five uh, steps onto a onto a slide uh, so kind of sticking with that theme uh, this research kind of suggested three ideas and kind of very much similar to what's going on in education at the moment is that um to kind of get over that issue where teachers fall into the trap of trying to give lots of information and content as quickly as they can. That actually to kind of combat that, that we use things like a graphic organizer, uh, that we use a sequenced curriculum. So that's coming right through from, from top, uh, obviously from the top to bottom. And that we always use chunking in lessons when we're given this new information. Um, Susie, what are your yes. thoughts? Um, no, I definitely agree. It, I think the hardest part is the whole curriculum overhaul, um, designing a curriculum where you can deliver the content. And I, I, as a school, we are obviously doing that at the moment. And you can really see how um, that is changing the attitudes of students and how they're retaining that information over long periods of time as well. I think it's difficult at the moment as well, yeah. if you look at like real world context, you know, where there's so much pressure on schools you know, currently to kind of get through content that's been missed or catch up content. And actually, let's be honest, you, it's quite hard not to fall into that trap, isn't it? Mm. Or kind of that cognitive overload. Make, makes me think about, you know, I always remember the cognitive overload about, you, you think of like a 24-hour news channel or a Sky Sports news channel, and the, the kind of the visual bombardment that goes on there, and actually what these young people's brains are kind of exposed to on that sort of level and, and, and that sort of plane. And actually, you know, when you when you look at, at those sort of things, it's like well, there's a ticker tape going along the bottom. There's this presenters presenting, they're interviewing someone, and there's a feed of what's everything's going on. It's just like so much stuff. And I don't, they must have done some research to see if it actually does stick or if it's just supposed to. But I think from a, a school perspective, I think there's, there's, there is that pressure, isn't it? It's that added pressure. I've got to get through this content. Got to get through all this stuff. And so you feel it. You feel you almost got to catch up yourself and, and be inundated by the pupils or inundate people's with all that information and actually it takes a brave teacher to go right we're just going to take this really slowly really simply and make sure it really sticks i think that's where the kind of the kind of balance needs to be put i don't know about this I've, i mean i agree with the sky sports kind of uh if you look at that kind of image on the screen i wonder what decisions led to that is it that they've got too much content they need to deliver and actually i'd have to have another look at it but do they prioritize uh, you know 
football being a big sport, do they make sure that that takes up a certain percentage of the screen and actually things that are, um, you know, kind of less popular take up smaller chunks of the screen? I don't know. That, I, yeah. That probably elicits like an emotional response as well, having all that information. And is that something that we want or is that something that they want when they're delivering that information? I guess they want to keep you on the TV channel as yeah. well. I guess that kind of the research they've done is to kind of keep you hooked, isn't it? It's um it's interesting. There was when I've done research about cognitive load, a lot of the research talks about you know the working memory can only retain up to like three or four pieces of new information at one point, and if you take that literally in a in like in a classroom, what does that mean? Like how would you interpret that in a classroom out of interest? Because you know I'd be quite intrigued for your opinions and also anyone's opinions at home listening. Please do hit us up at Insights Little on Instagram and Twitter. Adam, I don't know if you noticed, but we sacked you from the social media <laughs> role. <laughs> I'm trying to get back in there. Can you tell? <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Continue. What was the question? I think you're right. I, know, I think it is. It's really difficult when you think about uh, any sort of lesson and it all varies in terms of classrooms. But when you think about like the levels of differentiation you have to apply, and actually, you know, some people will grasp five bits of information probably quite competently quite quickly as opposed to somebody that doesn't and you need to review that and it's about I suppose it's about scaffolding and about thinking about ways in which you chunk it it's probably also partly is that you know you it might you may it might be new in your classroom but it might not be new information to them anyway and actually that's when you get that kind of accelerated progress from some of those pupils so differentiation even at the top end becomes important then as well it's also where the curriculum I guess comes in really being able to as a school identify maybe that prior learning and those cross-curricular links, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think especially from a teaching perspective, someone coming into teaching, especially in this year, having to deliver a lot of content and, um, you know, grasping teaching as a whole, I think that would be quite difficult. Um, you know, uh, we is those who have experience already, uh, you know, when we're be managing behaviour as well as delivering content, it is it, sometimes it can be overwhelming but for someone who's a new teacher i think having been told we need to get through x amount of content in a certain amount of time they're feeling the pressure and therefore are they able to deliver a, a lesson where all the students learn two to three things they're experiencing yeah, that cognitive it. overload themselves aren't exactly they? Yeah. yeah here's a brand new curriculum that you've never delivered yeah. This is the style of teaching we'd like to see. Here's our behavior policy. Yes. Here's this policy. You've got to do this. You got to, you know, and it's actually that's just again that's just overwhelming. It's a bit like a classic inset problem, isn't it? Cognitive overload, information overload. Mm. I think it, I think it'd be interesting considering how we have had to move towards things like remote learning to learn some of this sort of research that's gone on. You know, we're using the sort of Sky Sports analogy. Actually, screen time and what they see visually there. Is pretty much what remote learning is they're from home they're seeing that and there's no kind of interaction there's no sort of whiteboard there's no nothing else they've got a sort of 16 inch screen or whatever it is and that's that's what they see so how we how we utilize that screen time could be something that's quite new for teaching because we've never had to really do that have we no it's uh i mean i, I don't know if there is actually any studies taking but i'm sure there is there is studies taking place on the impacts of it. Well, I know, I know there's lots of studies around just how teaching has to change and how you know an hour's lesson doesn't necessarily fit in the same format as if it was live in a classroom as if it is 
live at home or done remotely. So I think you know the ways in which teaching practice is going to have to adapt for remote learning is quite interesting. And I know that there's a sort of a, there's a piece of information around actually students only being able to retain 15 minutes worth of designated screen time before they start to switch off. So again, any thoughts on that? And hit us at insights little. There Thanks, we go. Adam. <laughs> yeah. nearly, nearly yeah. um, I suppose last thought we spoke about that kind of sequence curriculum and the chunking I think we all kind of agree with those things yeah. what about graphic organizers what are people's thoughts on those yeah yeah I mean a little bit linked to the first uh, episode you know in terms of actually a graphic a graphic can be massively beneficial I think uh, in terms of ways in which information can be displayed you know again you know I, my subject particularly doesn't massively use it, so I don't know. So maybe that's something that actually just will be subject specific. We'll agree with uh, sequence curriculum and using chunking. Yeah, no, it does help to break down a lot of that. And if it's planned, then obviously that takes away a lot of the stress element for the teacher to get through a specific amount of content in you know, a short amount of time. Yeah, I think it also ultimately comes down to you really need to know your class and plan lessons accordingly, isn't it? And welcome to the messages part of our podcast. Um, you're joined by Ross and Ben for this section. Um, yeah, Adam and Susie are so engrossed in their social media, getting relaying all the messages they've been uh, otherwise engaged. Yeah, I think it's become a bit of a competition between the two after... Obviously, yeah. we publicly kind of he, put it out there that Adam was sacked earlier. Yeah. Publicly humiliated, I think, is the word. He kind of uh, wasn't happy. No, he didn't through, take it very well. Didn't throw, yeah, this one really got one microphone left through, through the others. Storm in a teacup, it comes to mind. But anyway. So, yeah, so you're left with me and Ben, who we're not very good with the social media. No, um, but it's been left to us. There's a tweeter. There's a tweeter. Is that an earthquake? It sounds like thunder. <laughs> Um, yeah, so just on that, yeah, uh, tweet us or Instagram, I believe, are the two sort of methods of uh, transport that people use. That's it. And uh, this will be the last time you hear from us in the messages section. So uh, if obviously you speak to Adam or speak to Susie and yep. get in touch. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Little Insights. My name's Pearl and I've got today with me Paddy. Paddy will be talking about his experience um, in Ghana before colonial days. We're celebrating um, Black History Month here at Heathcote School and Paddy will be storytelling telling us about his experiences. So I'd just like to start off by saying thank you Paddy for agreeing to speak with us yes. this oral history of your experiences um so really the first thing that i'd like to ask is what was life like um in ghana west africa before independence in 1957 before independent 1957 ghana as a whole was named before it was named as gold coast by the british people and then from Gold Coast, where life was so bad, like uh, there were no schools, education was very bad, no hospitals, but eventually the missionaries 
built some schools and education started coming up and then the missionary built the hospital as well but it was only in the cities so people in the rural areas they have to travel sometimes four miles to get to school and go back without shoes and then we were on this situation for a long time especially we have to make our own cooking utensils with our mineral resources like wood you you can make a wood where we, it's like a bowl where people used to eat especially the northerners they they were mostly eating in that wood bowls and the central region ashanti region were moving one with a clay they call it apotowa <laughs> so I remember that's that. why people enjoy it you know so things were very bad so what happened is few people who were educated had opportunity to board sheep from takrade that is the only uh, harbor you had where you can see sheep there was no airplane so these people came here around 1945 to study and some of the names are Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, J.B. Dankwa, Buzia, Akwejei. There were six of them. So after their studies, they came back to Ghana and they went to our government 1952 that they want independence. And the government said, no, go and consult your chiefs. But then we didn't have any magistrate court anything if any criminal offense is the elders would achieve they have to sit down and decide so the government asked them to take this matter to the chief so they went the first chief they want was asante Hine. that was Prempe the second and he asked them what's the matter they said oh we went to the government we said we we want independent and the government said you should come back to you so they, when they went to the, the Asante chief said, he can't decide, go again. And they, they were not certified. They went back to the governor for a couple of years, at least two years. And eventually the governor said, so what do you want me to do? What do you people want? And they said they want to form a party. And that, this party was formed 1954 by two sides. Kwame Nkrumah and his people called Conventional People's Party. And other people opposition from National Liberation Movement Party. So they were fighting together and eventually around 1956, end of 56, the governor came to conclusion that when do you want to the independent? They say we have to vote for the majority to agree. So they, they voted, they voted by uh, January 1957. After voting, the CPP, then Kwame Nkrumah, he won the, he won the election to become the first prime minister of Ghana. So he chose 7th of March for all people together at Blackstar Square so that the governor can give us our freedom. 
So on the 5th of March, all chiefs, school children, you all gather at Flasta Square. And sorry, Flasta Paddy, Square. were you one of those school children? Did you? But then I was in primary school. Okay. Yeah, but mm -hmm. we all went there with the Queen flag. Okay. And then celebrated. Right. So you had the British flag. You have British flag and British cap as well, jog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that was a, a gift from Yeah, the, everything was the British. Queen. Our currency, everything was British money. Oh, so the currency in Ghana before independence before, was pounds and shillings. Yeah, even after the independence, it was pound, shillings, uh, pence, yeah, yeah. pence, five p. Oh, right, uh, I so, see. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, we had it. Okay, yeah, so before it. independence, it was ruled by the British, yeah, and we were, um, the queen was the head of our state, everything, everything and also we were using the British currency, currency, uh, we used Oxford books, right? Because I no see. publication in Ghana. All mm -hmm. the books have come, have to come to break from Britain. Okay, so after the independence, did we um, did the Ghanaian keep the British flag, or was that was changed? Wasn't no, it? No, you changed the flag mm -hmm. to the the green. It's the red, red gold, gold, green with a star, star in the middle. Inside. Right. Okay. And do you remember what that symbolizes? The red, gold, no, green. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So I believe that the red stands for the blood that was shed by the many Ghanaians that had fought for um, independence. For independence, the gold actually symbolizes the original name. Well, the name that gold the coast. British had given yeah. um, Ghana, which was the Gold Gold Coast, because along the shores of Ghana there was lit gold. Um, and then the green is for the forest of Ghana. Ghana. And the star in the middle, which is very special, just is symbolizing the people of Ghana as in the black stars mm -hmm. um, of Ghana. Yeah, so that yeah. was yeah. the meaning behind yeah. the Ghanaian flag. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, and did the currency remain the same? or was The that currency changed? was still British money mm -hmm. until 1965. Right, okay. When they say we are going to eat uh, our own currency, which is CD. Yes. So the CD started around 65. Then we were, we were, we were eating together until people became used to. And then you stop the British money. Right, I see. I think you stop it late, late 65. Okay, so there was a transition period. Transition, yeah. And then we started to mm -hmm. use the um. Yeah, the they CDs. have to educate, especially the old people first, that if you put eight students here, two of them will make one CD. Oh. If you put two CDs, you get, but then the currency was very good. Mm -hmm. So you have to educate our mothers because they couldn't know and after the independent most people could read one two three mm -hmm. by going to adult education in the evening okay so for all this thing they get used to the cities right i see okay yeah. um and how would you describe life for you after independence well after the independent i think that's our first experience. Mm -hmm. We found that there were so many within two years, every region before independence, only the coastal side, Cape Coast and Accra, they 
they have the major secondary school. Okay. And Asante region, you have only two, Pokuware and Prempe College. And the universities, only one university, that was University of Ghana, Legon. So after the independence, they thought that Ghanaians need to be educated by starting with us from primary school, you go to secondary school. If you pass the common entrance, if you don't pass, then you go to technical school to take that woodwork or something like that. So they started opening various of them. Before then, all the schools were missionary schools. So the government started that every region, eight regions, everyone should get the same type of school. And they call it Ghana Educational Trust. Right, okay. So after independence, um, one of the first things to improve was education, education of the people. Education of the people. And then after secondary school, he concentrated on universities, that if people face school, um, secondary school, and sixth form, you do it secondary school, then you have to go to university because only few people can get a chance to come here. Gonna know aeroplane. If you want to come, even our own, our brothers and sisters who managed to come, they, it took them four weeks. Four weeks? By boat. Oh. And before you hear from your relative who has arrived, mm -hmm. they all arrived at Liverpool. I see. The letter came, no, no telephone, only letter he had to write. And that one may take weeks before you receive it. Okay. So Kwame Nkrumah said, okay, all these things, he had to open, apart from secondary school, he will concentrate on university too. So he op the first one he opened was Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. Okay. And then he concentrated on the teaching side, Cape Coast University, where only teachers, he will, teachers will be educated there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, he said for people to, to send people to come to do medicine in this country, it's better you have to train our own people. That And the first time he opened medical school in Ghana was 1965. That's where uh, uh, medical students were going to Legon. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that's so, very, very interesting yeah. to know about yeah. how the um, country was led by the British and actually the people fought for independence, gained it and wanted to improve and yeah. develop the people. That's yeah. very interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, now, for me, I think I'm very grateful that you've, you, you, you're sharing your experiences with me and I hope others will learn from it as well. I think it's very important to know my history um, to know African history because that gives me an identity of self and also just you know something that I didn't know some of the things that mm -hmm. you've just said so thank you for sharing you. um would you mind just quickly telling us why for you it's you know it's important for you to share your history with others like you're doing with us now oh well as we could see history gives you how your background is like where you come from, for you to respect your country, uh, no matter where you, uh, any country you come from. So with this experience I'm sharing with you now, give our generation 
especially our children born in this country, that Ghana, some of them even know, they all know it's Ghana. But if you share with them, say, no, we call it Gold Coast before, because of the gold, which is still there. And even now it's plenty. It's everywhere. Even every village, they got gold. Mm -hmm. And now we have aeroplane. If not independence, we don't have all these facilities. So mm -hmm. it's better to know that we didn't start all like uh, for British people or American people. We have to struggle before we reach where we are now. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Paddy, for spending yeah. this um, time with us. Hopefully, you'll come back and share some more historical oh, yeah, experiences sure. with us. Sure. Thank you very much. All right. Then. Okay. So now it's all right. Okay, if we finish the episode with the takeaways from today's episode, um, if I kick us off, I think uh, takeaway number one is that if you if you do have knowledge organisers, um, if you think of it as a retrieval task and how do they link to the lessons in which you're delivering and then perhaps do they help close the circle? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd, I'd possibly pick up on the point around differentiation. It's quite a popular word and overused at times. I think we sometimes forget how important it is to make sure that the lesson is well planned for that. And also going back to the knowledge organisers and the resources, actually making sure that you're resourceful around your dis dis differentiation, easy for me to say. <laughs> and uh, finally, if we have a consideration for the wider curriculum um, and the consequences that has for your subject, um, if you know similar topics have been discussed uh, prior to your lesson or obviously coming up for other subjects and how that can build into your lessons and perhaps actually becomes a hook as well. Yep. Yeah.